We're going to spend a little more time with Habakkuk. I, I'm afraid that Easter may get in the way, if I can put it that way. It doesn't ever get in the way, but uh, I think Easter may get in the way before we get done with Habakkuk. Uh, and I hope you're reading Habakkuk. I, I mean, I, you can read it in probably 15 or 20 minutes, but please read it and keep reading it. And just remember that what, what God has done in this little book is allow us to, to kind of crawl into somebody else's skin uh, and see life and see the world and see God from his perspective. And it's, it's a perspective that I think really we all understand. So, And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. But look with me just at verses 2 through 5 of Habakkuk chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. Ugh. He gathers for himself all nations and he collects as his own all peoples. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray and ask God for his spirit to help us understand it. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for inspiring this little book to be written. Thank you that, as we'll see, it really comes from you through Habakkuk to us. But, Lord, thank you that this is a real man's real experience. And, and I thank you that we, we really can understand it. Uh, now, by your spirit, would you take this little passage and would you encourage our hearts with it? Uh, would you encourage your people? Would you give us grace to fix our eyes on things we can't see, but things which are sure and certain and most definitely will come to pass, just as you encourage Habakkuk to do that very thing. So encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're back with Habakkuk, and I'd like to remind us of a few things as we come back to this little book. Um, let's remember, first of all, that Habakkuk is looking at the world around him, and he wonders what's going on. That's the, that's the basic situation here. Um, you know, this is a real man. I use this phrase ad nauseum. Use it for 30 years ad nauseum. But, but I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded of this. This is a real man who lived at a real place in real time. And if you get on H.G. Wells' time machine and you go backwards, you'll bump into him. He's back there in real time and real space. And where he is at his particular moment in history, about 600 B.C., with all of that history of the Israelites behind him, where he is at his moment, at that moment, is a guy who's looking at the world around him and he's wondering what the heck is going on. What's going on? He's troubled. Martin Lloyd-Jones and James Montgomery Boyce, Montgomery Boyce, depending on Martin Lloyd-Jones, describes this as the problem of history. 
The problem of history. The problem of history is what is it? Who's in control of it? Does it have any meaning? Does it have any purpose? Is it going anywhere? That's what Habakkuk is struggling with. He looks at the world around him and he asks, what is going on? And then God, in grace and kindness and mercy, through Habakkuk, enables us to wrestle with that question. And and what I've suggested to you, and this is the second thing to remember, is that we're being invited into Habakkuk's prayer life, his personal interaction with God. This, This prophecy is unlike the rest of the minor prophets. The rest of the minor prophets, pretty largely, have an outside audience, an audience that's sort of out here. Whether it's the Assyrians and Nineveh, you know, Jonah and Nahum, or, or the northern prophets who are speaking to Israel, or the southern prophets who are speaking to Judah. In, in, in just about every case, there's an audience out there, but here the audience is up there. It's Habakkuk wrestling in the presence of God with, with what's going on around him. Now look, unless you're a rock, you know, unless you're a stone, meaning inanimate, non-living, but beyond that, un- unless you're, you know, you're, you're more than just, a, if you're a human being, you're, you wrestle with this stuff. At some point in your life, you wrestle with what is going on. What's happening? And God, in great kindness and mercy, brings us into Habakkuk's life and teaches us some things as we wrestle with this little book, as we watch Habakkuk wrestling before the presence of God with what is going on at his particular moment in history. Now, what's going on with Habakkuk is that he looks at the spiritual condition of the nation, and it's deplorable, it's awful. He can't distinguish the people of Judah from the nations around them. They don't look any different. They don't act any different. They don't talk any different. They look the same, and he's heartbroken by it. He's crushed. And what he wants, what he longs for, is for God to do a work in Judah. And the first few verses, verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 1, are basically Habakkuk's crying out to God that God would do something in Israel. Do something in Judah. This is what I see, but what's needed here is a revival. We need renewal. We need reformation. We need you to act in might and power and bring some transformation to this mess. Amen. Amen. That's kind of week one, and I suggested to you from our first look at Habakkuk that that as Habakkuk prays, there are some things that characterize his prayer life. He is honest before God. He prays with understanding, so he prays with honesty. He prays with understanding, understanding who God is, understanding what Israel's purpose is supposed to be, that she's supposed to be different, that she's supposed to be unlike the nations around her. He prays with an understanding of all of that, and then he perseveres. He prays with perseverance. So he prays honestly. He prays with understanding. He prays perseveringly. And then he prays with assurance. He prays knowing that God is going to listen. Okay? What's, what's the, I mean, if we could take a little test here, what's the recurring theme that I've been suggesting to you in the Minor Prophets? God is at home in his universe. He knows what's going on in his universe. He cares about what's going on in his universe. And he has power to do something about what's going on in his universe. 
And Habakkuk believes that, and he expects that God will respond. But when God responds, and this was the second week, he doesn't respond the way Habakkuk wants for him to respond. Habakkuk wants renewal. He wants revival. He wants reformation. What God promises, what God tells him is going to happen, is that he's going to raise up, raise up this nasty nation the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. If you see Chaldean, it means read Babylonian, same group of people. And again, for those of you who have seen Tolkien's films, you know, The Lord of the Rings, that whole thing, these are the Uruk-hai. Okay, those are the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. They are mean, nasty, ugly, brutish people. And they devour indiscriminately. That's what those last few verses of chapter 1 are about. They're like fishermen with a dragnet. They just cast the net out into the waters. They don't fish discriminately, you know, with hooks and bait and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, they'll do that. But they cast the dragnet out into the ocean, and they draw everything up and devour everything. They're indiscriminate, ruthless, mean, nasty, ugly, brutish people. And Habakkuk is stunned by what he hears that God will do. And he can't get it to work in his little brain. He can't get that to work. Wait a second. I know we're bad, but there's so much worse. How can you appoint what is worse to consume what is more righteous than it? How can you do that? And so he comes back to God this second time, and that's verses 12 and 13. And after getting the response that he didn't expect to get, didn't want to get, there are these things, these four things that I suggested that Habakkuk does when he comes back to God. Number one, he stops. He takes a step back. That's verse 12. He stops. Wait a second. I need to remind myself of some things. When I'm confronted with God's mysterious providence, when God's going to do something that doesn't conform to my understanding of what it is that I think he will do. What do I do? Do I become the judge, capital J, and sit in judgment of God? Or do I take a step back and do I remind myself of some things? That's what Habakkuk does. He stops. He takes a step back and he reminds himself, he reminds himself of some things. He remembers God, verse 12 who he is, what he is like, that he is the everlasting Lord, that he is the covenant God, that he is the holy God. And then also he remembers God's purpose. You remember this? This is such a, he says, we shall not die. How does he know that they won't die? How does he know that? When the Babylonian hordes come marching across, how does he know that we won't die? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, I know I won't die. He may die. But he knows that Judah will not die because God has promised that a Messiah is going to come from Judah. And he knows that God is faithful to his purposes. And even though he, Habakkuk, may die and others around him may die, he knows the promise will never die. The promise will never die. And so then, verse 1 of chapter 2, He goes to his guard posts. He goes to his watchtower to see what the Lord will say, to see what the Lord 
will do. And so here he is. We're back at Port of Habakkuk has been waiting up there for a month since we were last with him, <laughs> waiting for us to get from verse 1 into the rest of chapter 2. But there he is. He's waiting on the watchtower. He's waiting to see what God will say, waiting to see what God will do. And so God responds initially in verses 2 through 5. This is God's second response to Habakkuk's second complaint. And I'd summarize the response in this way. The second time that God responds, he gives to Habakkuk a threefold response. And here it is. He says, in effect, look for this, live like this, and avoid this. God responds to Habakkuk. He says, look for this, look for this, live like this, and avoid this. Now, I want to spend most of the rest of the time looking at the first of those points. Look for this. Verse 2, the Lord answered, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. Now, can you catch what the Lord is saying to Habakkuk? Listen to these words again. Appointed time. An appointed time. Or a time of appointment. The end. An end. Something out there. If it seems slow, don't be discouraged. Wait for it. It's coming. It will not delay. It will not lie. In fact, it hastens to its end. What's God doing here? Well, he's doing with Habakkuk what he does repeatedly through the scriptures, what he does for you and for me in the midst of our circumstances as we look at the world around us and we ask the question, what is going on? What God does for Habakkuk is lift him up outside of himself and get him to look beyond his circumstances to fix his gaze, to fix his eyesight, to fix his attention on something that most certainly will come to pass. Let me make some technical points here, just from the text. First, this word vision in the text. It's a term that refers to prophecy. Uh, it, were, it refers to a word that God speaks, a prophetic word. Okay? Again, it's something that God speaks. It doesn't originate with Habakkuk. It originates with God. It comes from God. It's conveyed to Habakkuk, and from Habakkuk, it is then conveyed out to the people around. Okay? That's what a, that's what a vision is. That's what this prophetic word is. It originates with God. It comes to Habakkuk. But it doesn't stay with Habakkuk. Look at the text. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. The idea here, whether literally understood or figuratively understood, and it doesn't really matter, the idea here 
is that what Habakkuk receives from God is to be spoken out, written out into the world. And as he does that, it is a message so clear and so plain that one can understand it without difficulty. In fact, one can understand it so easily, it is so clear, so lacking in complexity, that the average person in the average village can hear this word or see this word, and that person then himself can become a herald who runs with that word to speak that word to other people. That's what the text is saying. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Here's Habakkuk. He gets it from God. It's a prophetic word. Habakkuk makes, makes it known. He preaches it. He communicates it. He writes it down. Perhaps it gets put up like a, you know, like a, a, a banner in a marketplace. And people who are passing by see it. And having seen it, they themselves then run to communicate it. And exactly what is that word? What is the thing that God says? What is the thing that God conveys to Habakkuk, which Habakkuk then communicates to the world around him? In the midst of all of Habakkuk's anxieties, in the midst of all of his confusion, in the midst of the uncertainty that surrounds him, Habakkuk receives a word from God that there is a day out there. There is an appointed time out there. There is a moment coming out there. And that moment most certainly will come to pass. It is predetermined. It is ordained. And what God speaks, based upon what he has ordained, God will most certainly bring to pass. By the way, folks, I just got to say, because I see you looking at Vern and I see you shivering and shaking, the day is coming. <laughs> it's coming. Well, we don't have to live between the sauna and the refrigerator. Okay, it's like that. I don't know when it is. I wish I did. I wish I could tell you. But it's a day that's out there. And as each day goes by, that day comes closer. It's not close enough, but it's getting closer. That's the kind of word that Habakkuk received from the Lord. And specifically, what is going to happen on that day? Well, the thing that's going to happen on that day is that God who was appointed that day is going to bring judgment on the Chaldeans, on the Babylonians. God is going to bring judgment upon this nation that he has raised up to serve as an instrument of his discipline, an instrument of his correction upon his rebellious and wayward people. There's a day coming when the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, will be humbled, will be brought low. Read Daniel. Read that, that scene of Nebuchadnezzar walking around on the roof of his palace saying, is this not Babylon the great, which I have raised up by my own wisdom and by my own power and my own strength and my own might? What God is saying to Habakkuk, long before Nebuchadnezzar 
ascended to that throne and began these conquests. The day is coming when I, the God of heaven and earth, will bring judgment upon these people. What's God doing? He's reminding Habakkuk that history is his, that he raises up kings, that he brings them down, that he appoints them for his purposes. He's reminding Habakkuk that every day in the whole of human history is in his hands, that he orders it, that he governs it, and what he appoints most certainly will come to pass. He's lifting Habakkuk up out of himself and getting him to look down the hallway of history, the corridor of history, getting him to look over the horizon of history to see things that he cannot see, to fix his eyes on those things, not on the things around him. Look for what you can't see. That's what God is saying to Habakkuk. Look for what you can't see, but which is most certainly there because of my appointment. Now, what's really interesting about this, uh, this passage is that these words, now, again, remember where we are. We're 600 B.C. That's Habakkuk's day and time. He's looking 40, 50, 60, 70 years, God is. God is looking 70 years down the hallway of history, over the horizon of history. What's so striking and interesting is that these words that you find in this text show up in Daniel, in Daniel's record of visions, particularly chapters 8 and 11 of Daniel. The word vision appears and recurs. The word appointed time appears and recurs. And the word end appears and recurs. Daniel 8 verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 17. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And then verse 19. I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, why do I find that striking? Well, I find that striking because Daniel, 70 years later, writing his visions, picks up language that Habakkuk used, that God inspired him to use in writing his vision. What's striking is that Daniel uses that same language at precisely the time that was prophesied through Habakkuk. Daniel witnessed in his lifetime the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel witnessed in his lifetime the decree of Cyrus that the people, Cyrus who was a Mede, a Persian, who declared that the people should return to their promised land. Daniel uses that language not to describe what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, not to describe what happened to the Babylonian Empire, but to describe what would happen to the whole of worldliness and all worldly institutions that are raised up against God, what Daniel is looking ahead to, what God prophesies through Daniel is God's final judgment. Not upon this Babylon that collapsed in 539 B.C., but the Babylon that is the world system raised up against God. He takes up all that language and points it beyond 
the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's day to Babylon the great harlot whose collapse is described in Revelation 18 and 19. So Habakkuk gives us a little nibble, but Daniel gives us the greater picture, the greater picture of the collapse of all worldliness that is raised up against the one true God. It's amazing. It's amazing how many times in the scriptures, particularly clear in the New Testament, that God does for us the very thing that he was doing for Habakkuk and the very thing that he did in Daniel's day, getting us up outside of ourselves to look beyond ourselves and our circumstances to see things that are there, that are appointed by God that cannot fail. Romans 8, verse, I'm going to give you several passages. Romans 8, 18 and 19. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, right? The suffering of this present time. What's that? It's a current circumstance. It's right now. What is it in your life? Getting old? That's true for all of us. Some of us just don't feel it as acutely. But it's true for all of us. Relationships that are a mess. Economic hardships, uncertainty about the future. Wonder if you're going to keep your job, whether you're going to get a job. Listen to what Paul says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For it is in this hope that we are saved. And if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, Paul's doing the same thing Habakkuk did. Getting him up out of himself to look beyond himself and his circumstances to a sure and certain day that is coming when all the sons and daughters of God will be disclosed, will be revealed. And when they are revealed and made manifest, the whole creation will be liberated from its bondage and everything will be set free. And Paul says, in effect, you don't see it, but hope for it because it's certain. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, the things over the horizon of history, the things down at the end of the hallway of history, the things you can't see, Those are the things that are eternal. Those are the things that are eternal. Kings rise, kings fall, economies come, economies go. Health is with us, health departs. There are things that are eternal and that cannot be changed. And that's where my heart is to be fixed. And that's where my vision is to be fixed. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 sometime. Paul speaking to these Christians in Thessalonica. People who have come out of paganism. That's the setting. Look, 
people who have come out of paganism, they've heard the gospel, they've believed the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, who died, who was raised again, is the promised king of glory, who when he comes, establishes his kingdom, establishes his rule and reign, prosecutes his purposes out into the world, regardless of what the nations of the earth think about it including Nero, including Pol Pot, including Idi Amin, including Joseph Stalin, including all the butchers of our century past and of all past centuries. Well, then the Thessalonians' non-Christian neighbors say, oh, yeah? Then how come your husband just died? Then how come your child just got sick? If Jesus is the king of glory, established his kingdom, established his rule and reign, prosecuting his purposes out into the world, how come? How come people in your church die? And so Paul has to speak this word of comfort to the Thessalonians and remind them of things that he told them when he was with them. That Jesus did come the first time and he established his kingdom and his rule and reign and he is prosecuting his purpose out into the midst of the world. The evidence of that is the fact that the gospel is going out and it's rescuing people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He's adding to the church daily those who are being saved, just like we said last week, just like happened here last week. That's the evidence that Jesus has established his rule and reign. The gospel is going out into the world and it's rescuing people left and right. But Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a loud command. He will descend. His people will come up out of the graves. And those who are still alive and who are left at the time of his return will be gathered up with those who have died. And they will meet Jesus in the air. And so they will be with the Lord forever. But let me take a page from N.T. Wright, who gives us a great interpretation of that passage, who says, Don't think for a moment that you're going to be stuck in the clouds with Jesus forever and ever. That's for the angels to do. You've heard me say this. They're the ones who sit on clouds. They're the ones who play harps. We go up to meet Jesus who returns as a conquering general, just as Roman citizens would go out of Rome to meet a returning general, and then they would accompany him back into the city, and we will accompany Jesus back to the new heaven and the new earth. And we will enjoy him and the splendor and beauty and loveliness of the new heaven and the new earth, beginning with a banquet feast forever and ever. What's Paul saying to the Thessalonians? Get up outside yourself and look over the horizon of history and see things that you can't see but that are eternal. Peter says the same thing, this passage that perplexes people. 2 Peter 3, God is not slow about his promise. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the Lord. However that reads, I don't have it in front of me. I should have. I apologize. Peter's point is the same as Paul's. The day of the Lord is coming, and God is not slow about his promise. It will come at precisely the moment he is appointed for it to come. So fix your eyes on it. It's all over in the scriptures. Look for what you can't see. Fix your eyes on it. That's God's word to Habakkuk. 
That's God's word through Daniel to the people of Israel. That is God's word repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Look for this. That thing that's out there that is coming. Now, real quickly, how then do you live? You live by faith. That's what this fourth verse is about. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the Chaldean. Basically, what God is doing is setting before us two ways to live. You can live in arrogance or you can live in humility. You can live in pride and worldliness, which leads to death. It's interesting, the word in the text that's translated puffed up, this is kind of gross, but it's a word that's used to describe an abscess, a boil that puffs up with disgusting, nasty stuff on the inside. What a great picture of pride and arrogance. Puffs itself up. And beneath the surface is ugliness. Ugliness that leads to death. What's God saying through Habakkuk? Look, you can live that way, it leads to death. Or you can live in a completely different way which leads to life. You can live trusting that what I'm telling you is true. The righteous man, the righteous woman will live by faith. Or the righteous man, the righteous woman by faith. By faith in what? Just this sort of naive hopefulness that everything is going to work out in the end? No. By faith in the word which God has spoken. God, you know, you've heard this, haven't you? You've seen the bumper sticker and you've heard the comment about the bumper sticker, the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Wrong. (laughs) Thanks, Ray, for being my foil, but wrong. God said it, Whether I believe it or not has nothing to do with it. He said it. That settles it. And the righteous person is the person who hears every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and trusts it or struggles to trust it, knowing where it comes from, knowing that it's true, knowing that it's inviolable, just like that day that's down the corridor of history. It's unalterable. It's fixed. It cannot be changed. It is coming And God through Habakkuk reminds us there are two ways to live. You can reject that word and live in pride and arrogance, which is like an abscess on a tooth or a boil on the skin. Or I can hear the word of God and I can rejoice in it and say, thank God the day is coming when all that is wrong will be made right, when all unrighteousness will be exterminated and eliminated, when everything that is impure will be cleansed, when every arrogance will be brought low, and God himself will be exalted. And Jesus, his son, will be preeminent. And all the nations of the world will delight in the loveliness of his splendor and glory. That day's coming. And the righteous person keeps, struggles to keep, fights to keep, with great pains seeks to keep that moment 
as the defining moment which he believes and by which he or she lives. So how do we live? We live by faith, trusting every word that comes from the mouth of God, not puffed up, not arrogant, none of the rest. And then lastly, here's a thing to avoid. Verse 5 is simply the kind of expansion of what is there in the first part of verse 4. Moreover, or indeed, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he never has enough. What's God telling us to avoid? He's telling us to avoid the proud and the arrogant. Run from the proud and the arrogant. Because there is an emptiness in their souls that causes them to consume everything in their path. Flee it. Run from it. And instead, no life. There's a whole lot more to be said about that verse. Maybe I'll say something next week because it's a wonderful verse. And by the way, it's not a condemnation of wine for those of you who do maybe have a little wine every now and then. It is a condemnation of the delusions, the worldliness, the unchecked appetites, the indulgences that are so often characteristic of the proud and the arrogant. And God is saying, flee it. So what do we look for? We look for that day. We fix our eyes on that day because it's coming. How do we live? We live in light of that day and trusting ourselves to God, trusting every word that he speaks is true. And what do we avoid? We avoid, flee from, run away from, arrogance, pride, any of that stuff that is just like an open grave that consumes everything in its path. God, give us grace and help to see what we can't see, to live in terms of it, and to avoid the pitfalls of pride and arrogance. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for this, uh, this great little book. Um, would you encourage our hearts? And I pray that we would help one another in this. Lord, we need each other. I need these people to help me. And they need me to help them. And we need each other to help each other. Keep our eyes fixed on that day. Lord, you know that we struggle. You know that we're in the midst of uncertainties. You know we have fears and doubts. But would you lift us above ourselves and enable us to see ever more clearly that great day which is coming? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and sing number 700.